welcome to episode seven of the GAM Talks podcast. I'm joined by Mark Horton and Amanda Lyons, respectively Investment Director and Investment Manager, Technology Equities. Mark and Amanda discuss how some disruptive growth trends have massively accelerated in the wake of COVID-19, the next wave of technological innovation in Digital 4.0, and what one piece of technology they couldn't do without. Don't forget to listen to our important legal information at the end of this podcast. I'm joined by Mark Horton and Amanda Lyons. Welcome both. Hi. Hi. Um, Mark, can you um, kind of explain your view that, that technology investing is, is about more than just technology, that there's almost not technology investing anymore, it, it pervades everything? Um, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I've been investing in the technology sector for um, over 25 years now. Um, and if I go back even 10 years, um, pretty much everything that I would have invested in would have had technology as a sales line item, hardware or software or semiconductors. Um, but in today's world, if, if you ask anybody what they perceive as the top technology companies in the world, they'll come up with names like Google and Facebook and Tesla. Uh, and these companies don't sell technology. In the case of Google and Facebook, they sell advertising. Tesla sells cars. So technology is no longer really a, a vertical um, in the sense that it used to be. It's really an economic horizontal. It pervades across all sectors uh, and all industries. Uh, and Amanda, um, your, you, your focus is obviously on disruption, disruptive growth, um, we've yeah. seen that across many, many industries. Um, do you see that that's only going one way and it's going to increase going forward? So if you think about disruption, um, it's really quite important that you, you think about um, you look at different sectors and we've already seen this sort of disruption coming in coming through in the sort of the pre-covid world like you take the retail sector as an example you were seeing uh, online companies disrupt the retail space before we had covid and then we sort of enter into 2020 and we've seen this level of disruption increase as we had lockdowns and there basically weren't other options available um, to the consumer and as worlds have sort of started to open up again and we sort of enter this this post-COVID world, hopefully, at some point soon, um, this disruption isn't really going away. And what's become quite interesting is you sort of look at the maybe the more traditional retailers um, and compare them to sort of the, these more disruptive retailers. It's, it's traditional retailers have to adapt. If you don't adapt, you're going to die. Um, you need to have this level of disruption. And that doesn't mean that just all of the online players are going to be the winners and all of the offline players are going to be the losers. It's about, as, as Mark was saying, having technology in sort of the core of your business. So you'll have offline players who are adopting technology into everything that they're doing and are still able to disrupt the space. And that's going to be very important going forward. I mean, it's not just the retail sector you're seeing it in. I mean, most recently in this year, you've seen sort of the exercise sector so the idea of having a gym at home is nothing new. I mean, in the 80s, you could buy your exercise bike and have it at home. And in a lot of cases, they sat there and ended up being quite an expensive clothes horse. But Peloton has sort of 
totally changed the way that they think about things. They've actually disrupted the space. So it's not just about bringing that piece of equipment to the home, but it's bringing that gym experience to the home and linking you into other people, linking you into a real class. So it's that idea that you, you're having that gym experience. You're, it's totally disrupting that either home workout space or even the workout in the gym for a fraction of the cost. So it's these sort of levels of disruption that's going to be very important going forward. And that goes across sort of all industries and all spaces and it's going to come in a different form and I don't think you're just looking at the the online players as being the winners you're looking for people that are really sort of putting this technology into their core and trying to find a way of disrupting the existing market mm-hmm. and Mark obviously um, uh, many of these um trends themes have have either shifted or or massively accelerated in in the wake of the covid pandemic um would you like to kind of give some examples of where you've seen that in action um yeah so i think one of the key um facets of digital disruption is that you have um this network effect, uh, what's essentially called Metcalfe's law, which is the the power and value of a network increases exponentially with the number of users. So if as a player in a particular market, you can take a big uh, lead in that market, then you can generate significant network effect for yourself to the detriment of your competitors. So one of the things that COVID has done is it has allowed certain companies in certain segments to to do just that. So a really good example would be Zoom. Uh, We're all used to to doing Zoom calls these days. um, And Zoom has created a a huge user base uh, because of the need to use video conferencing. Um, And even though many, many of those users, probably well over 95% of the Zoom users are free users, they don't pay. In fact, I don't know actually anybody who pays for Zoom. Um, Nevertheless, they've created a substantial network effect uh, and it will be, you know, it will take time to see, but it is likely that that will give them a, a big step up that will leave them um, a, a player within that market, uh, regardless of how the market develops longer term. So I think what COVID has done is it's given certain companies a, a real step up, uh, an opportunity to create their network advantage. It, it seems obvious to me the attraction, the appeal of, of, of tech. You know, it's something uh, that, that fascinates me. But ha- what what led you originally to to becoming an investor in, in technology? Um, so I actually uh, have to have to uh, give some clues towards my age here because I actually did the, <laughs> the first the first ever um, computer science A level. Um, when it was first offered as a, as, a, as a syllabus item a very, very long time ago. Um, and is that kind of when, I, when schools had one BBC computer, right? Precisely, exactly. We had a kind of, uh, we, had a, we, we had a research, I think it was a research machines computer that we had actually. Um, yeah. So, I mean, actually, it, it wasn't just about programming. You almost had to kind of build the computer as well as do the programming um, all, yeah. all at the same time. Uh, and the teacher who, who did that subject uh, owned a computer consultancy company. Um, and so I went and worked weekends and holidays and evenings and what have you, writing software um, for him. Um, and so that's what got me into technology as an area. And then when 
when I started my career in financial services, um, I, I found myself at um, a, a Swedish brokerage house at just at the time that, that the kind of mobile phone uh, mania was beginning to take off when people were very first owning their very first mobile phones. And of course, predominantly the brand names then were Nokia and Ericsson, both um, Scandinavian companies. Uh, and so I got quite involved in the technology sector of the day um, and then moved from there to to the asset management side and started to invest in it um, directly. So I've, I've had a keen interest in technology right from right from school. Mm-hmm. And Amanda? So my story is a little bit different to Mark. So I started my financial career um, covering the Japanese stock market. And the company that I worked for at that time um, basically collapsed during the financial crisis. So I was sort of faced with a decision. Do I continue um, covering Japan or do I look for a new challenge? And although I loved asset management, Japan wasn't really my passion. Loved it as a country, but as a place to invest was, I think, frustrating is, is probably a nice way of putting it. Um, so I, I looked to do something new. I was much more passionate about technology and the things that were coming out of Silicon Valley. So I, I, I set up my, my own tech startup. We focused on user-generated, crowdsourced um, entertainment content and news. Um, I, the side that I worked on, I worked with the web developers. I worked... Um, with AWS because at that point everything it was all hosted on the cloud I had to get up to speed with um, advertising with social channels which were all pretty nascent at the time and working out sort of monetization so I ran this business for two years and you know we had some decent traction um, but like with many sort of early stage startups we just didn't scale at a, a pace that was fast enough to make it financially viable so at that point, I looked to sort of combine the work that I'd done in sort of the more tech environment with the asset management and, and moved back into um, asset management, started working with Mark um, in technology and, and was able to sort of use the skills that I developed over those couple of years and bring them into my investing and, and to sort of also put a time context on this. This was a point where all of the, the companies that we think of as big names, the sort of the Facebooks and Twitters of the world hadn't, hadn't listed so my very early part was uh, covering the IPOs for all of these companies that I'd worked quite closely with in the prior years. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Mark, if we, if we um, as you did, if we go back in time um, to 1999-2000 and the, and the TMT bubble, um, did you learn any uh, big lessons back then um, that you've, you've kind of kept with you since? And can you see any kind of evidence of some of these trends reoccurring in, in, in the, you know, kind of some of the inflated valuations we've seen, some of the IPO uh, failures to get off the ground? Yeah, so I, mean, I think there are some similarities and there are some clear differences. Um, so the, the, I guess the first lesson that I learned, and it's something which I've carried through my entire investment career, is that uh, I like to invest in companies where I can justify their intrinsic valuation. I want to know that on its own, that company is worth more than I'm being asked to pay for it today. Now, in, back in 1999-2000, that helped me um, enormously because it meant that by the beginning of 2000, it was becoming very difficult to invest in anything. Um, and so, you know, forewarned is forearmed. Um, I reduced exposures. Um, and benefited really quite nicely when the crash um, did come. 
Um, I was, you know, had very low exposure to the highest growth, seemingly impossible to value names. Um, and there are, there are a lot of periods of time when that seems um, like a, a weak strategy. But it, the, the times that it helps you, uh, it's so impactful. Um, that it's absolutely worth doing. So uh, as we look at the markets now, there are definitely parts of the markets that begin to feel a little bit like 99, 2000, but not not as kind of across the sector as it was then. Everything looked highly, highly overvalued then. Um, you know, the, the cheapest companies just looked to be incredibly expensive and the most expensive companies had no value at all. They had no revenues. They were valued on number of eyeballs. Um, if we look at it in today's world, um, the cheaper companies actually do still look quite cheap. Um, the most expensive companies have just got very carried away on this wave of euphoria um, driven by things like working from home. So you have this group of names, you know, like Zoom, um, uh, that the retail investors particularly have got. Um, super excited about and there was a big retail um, drive in 1990 as well so I think that the uh, there are some similarities but it's but it's concentrated in a piece of the market rather than the broader market uh, so one just needs to be careful to avoid that that section of the market um, and then at the same time and overall I think you know the number of IPOs that we've seen in the last uh, 12 months in the technology arena um, is probably only about a quarter of those we saw in the last 12 months before the peak in 2000. Uh, and valuations relative to the market are pretty reasonable for the sector as a whole. Uh, whereas back in 2000, um, valuations relative to the rest of the market were, were extreme. So there are some reasons to be much more optimistic about this move. Um, but I think it's extremely important to be careful about a certain portion of the market, which has begun to become a little bit more bubble-like. Mm-hmm. And was it was it did you find it difficult back then to, to stick to your guns and, and not kind of bow to peer pressure and be sucked into some of these uh, some of these exciting sounding stocks? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in just the same way as, as, as we do today. You know, I'm always asked, why haven't we owned Tesla? Um, you know, why don't we own Apple or whatever it might be? You know, there are names that, that we get consistently asked about. Um, and, you know, we have to keep reiterating the reasons that we, we buy what we buy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that as a blueprint, it works over time. You know, there's this great um, saying about negative compounding. If you have one year where you lose, say, 50% of the value of your fund, it takes an awful long time to regain that. Uh, A lot longer than if your performance is maybe a little bit less stellar on the upside, but you don't lose too much on the downdraft. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Amanda, to, to, we, we've talked in the past about um, the fact that some of the leading technology disruptors are kind of decoupling from the broader macro trends. Um, and I know we've, we've used the example of Amazon in the past. Do, do you want to kind of expand on that theme? Yeah, so I, I could start about talking about Amazon and the retail space. So if you look at global retail sales in general, um, they're expected to grow at low single-digit de- single pace for the next few years. However, you see huge disparities within that space. So you have several of the online players that are growing at sort of a fast double-digit pace, and then obviously you have ones that are growing at much smaller pace now it's quite easy to just think that the ones that are going to be double-digit pace growth are going to be all of these these, um, pure online players. But you're seeing more and more 
of the maybe more traditional retailers who are who are looking to disrupt the space and, and looking for a, uh, to increase their growth. So even this week, we've heard of uh, Walmart being uh, investing in TikTok uh, as as that part of that operation to, to some extent is being opened up to, to US. Um, and that sort of at first sight feels a little bit uh, maybe unusual or it's hard to see where the synergies is, but as TikTok is um, looking to monetize um, its content, um, one of the ways that it's, one of the key ways of doing that is via advertising. And when you go and look at sort of the advertising space, the key things they talk about is closing the loop. So you have an advert, some an advertising for something that you're going out to buy. The person who's placing the advert wants to know that the consumer then goes and out, out and actually buys that by Walmart taking a stake and, and being able to sort of integrate with some of these adverts on TikTok. And it's, it's putting a lot of effort into the advertising space. They, their aim will be to try and close the loop. So um, that that has the potential to be quite interesting and to sort of disrupt the space going forward. I mean, you also look at the, the advertising market in general. Again, that's another market where um, it, it, the growth rate is basically in line with GDP. But then within advertising, you have segments that are growing significantly faster. So we've, obviously, the key disruptors everyone thinks about is uh, Facebook and Google, who have been growing significantly faster than GDP as they've disrupted the, uh, the advertising space and taken dollars away from maybe the more traditional advertising agencies. But if we sort of look at the, the next wave of disruption coming, one of those the key focal points is going to be the television space. So you have players like Roku, who's totally disrupting the way advertising works in television. So you had sort of the old school linear TV advertising where you'd, you'd buy an advert next to, say, a sports program because you're trying to target 30-year-old men, um, and you didn't really know much more about them other than they liked whatever sport was on at that time. Roku's totally changing that. So the advert that I see would be totally different to the one that you see and will be based off my my preferences and also my credit card information because they have that. So they can do very granular um, advertising in the same way that Facebook and Google are able to do, but they're doing it in the medium of television. So... That, that again is, is sort of this disruption that's happen, happening and this disparity between the, the space where you're having very slow growth but players who have seen very high growth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, t- t- um, TV is a great example of something that's just completely changed in the way people yeah. access it, isn't it? Um, you know, if I think of my own son, I can't remember him ever watching a programme when it's scheduled. He, he, you know, he watches everything on demand, basically. Yeah, and you're also seeing the devices that people are watching. I mean, um, the older generation, and I'm not going to say where I fit into, (laughs) tend to watch on the big screen in the living room, and it would be more of the family will come together and you're watching the same programme. But now that's totally changing. Every every person has their own device, and the room that you're watching the television in, if you want to even call it television, is totally different. And the medium you're watching is either on your phone or your iPad, and therefore what even counts as television? Is it YouTube? Is it Snap? Is it TikTok? Is it Netflix, Disney Plus? I mean, the, the, the array of options out there are huge, and each of them monetize in totally different ways. Yeah, yeah. And Amanda, Mark uh, mentioned Tesla already. Um, yeah. is, is that a good example of, I guess, of two things? One of um, a company that is massively disrupting, in this case, the auto sector, um, mm. and also one where the, the valuations kind of run away with itself because everybody's got very excited about it. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you summed that up very well, that you sort of, you look at Tesla and it's sort of a story of two halves. So on the one hand, you have Elon Musk at the helm. I mean, it's very hard to argue anything other than they, the Tesla and particularly Elon Musk have totally changed the way that we look at the, the auto segment and that the drive for electric vehicles has been um, very much, you can put it down to him and the work that he's done in that space. I mean, you can't deny that the cars that Tesla produce are, are incredibly impressive and, and probably the leading ones in the space. But when you then start to look at valuation, you know, Tesla is, is valued at over, has a market cap of over $400 billion. It's more than the next four biggest automakers combined. And you sort of take Toyota in number two space, which is half the size of Tesla. Last year, it produced just under 9 million vehicles versus Tesla's 360,000. Now, okay, Tesla's growing at a faster pace, even assuming they hit their their numbers of 500,000 deliveries this year, it's still a fraction of the amount Toyota's putting out. Now, Tesla has a, a leading advantage in EV, and as I said, their vehicles are very impressive, but the amount of competition that's coming to the market over the next couple of years um, and the improvements that we've seen in other auto manufacturers and what they're able to produce in electronic vehicles makes it hard to justify the the valuation that Tesla has. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mark, just to follow on from that, do you you think autonomous vehicles are inevitable and we're going to start seeing them on on the road soon? Uh, I think they're inevitable, but I'm not sure how quickly we'll see them on the roads, uh, primarily because of... um, more legal-based issues. Um, you know, the, the example often cited is what happens when you have a totally autonomous vehicle. Uh, it clearly has to take some kind of evasive action and needs to make a choice between, um, you know, running over a child in a pushchair or an old person on the other side of the sidewalk. Um, and how that those moral issues get dealt with uh, is going to take an awful long time to sort out. So there are going to be big insurance-related issues and regulatory issues for autonomous driving. But I think semi-autonomous um, will be very pervasive uh, very quickly. Um, and already you have quite a high degree of semi-autonomous driving in the newest Teslas at the moment, for example. Um, and that, I think, in itself is a, is a huge move um, towards to, to, towards you know serious level of change yeah um now i know you've you've been talking for a little while and, and, and increasingly talking about digital 4.0 can you explain what what digital 4.0 is and, and what that means for you as a, as a tech investor so we've kind of we sat down really over the turn of the year to try and think about what the next wave of technology is going to look like or what the next wave of innovation is going to look like um and i think that we've defined digital 3.0 as the coming together of the internet as a transport mechanism uh with um moore's law and metcalfe's law which is the the laws of the cost of technology with the networking of technology and that's created this enormous platform platform economy. So it's spawned companies like Amazon and Facebook and Alibaba. Um, But we think that the next uh, wave of technology is going to be driven by an even bigger proliferation of devices. So that consumer platform really is driven by the fact that we will have compute devices in our hands. So there are a number of single digit number of billions of, of, of devices. If we move forward to the next wave and we get uh, the connectivity of everything, 
Um, then we're going to be talking about tens, if not hundreds of billions of connected devices. And that brings with it a whole new wave of Metcalfe's law, of, of, of the law of connectivity uh, and of networks. Um, now, that brings with it um, uh, data, artificial intelligence, and, and as an, uh, and as an um, uh, an effective technology 5G to allow for the speed that is required at the edge of the network. Um, so all of these connected objects, for want of a better word, will be able to collect data, and that data will be analysed and used to better run um, particular devices, businesses, models. Um, and it's more likely to pervade sectors which have been uh, already partially disrupted, but where the level of disruption can be significantly greater. So we've seen the way in which, uh, you know, almost a quarter of the global advertising market is now digital in the hands of people like Google and Facebook. And we've seen how retail has been severely disrupted. What we don't see day to day is the way in which things like healthcare and industrials and uh, transportation are disrupted. And this will come, I think, with, with this next wave. So we're looking at uh, slightly different sectors um, as the most disrupted areas once we start to move into that phase. Um, and so that's where we see great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, as kind of going back to, to vehicles, I know transport as a service is, is going to be a huge area of, of focus for you going forward. You, you, you see that as a really big opportunity. Yeah, I mean, at its broadest, transportation as a, or transportation as an industry could be uh, an eight trillion dollar market. So it's about ten percent of global GDP. But that incorporates everything. It's not just uh, it's not just the manufacture of cars or, or of, uh, of ride sharing. It's also um, freight management. It's insurance. Um, it's uh, you know parking even. You know, there could be very dramatic changes in the dynamic way in which parking can be managed. Um, uh, you know, to take a really sort of futuristic example, what if you can drive to um, your local airport, park your car there for a week when you go away, um, and during that week somebody else can rent your car? Uh-huh. Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which transportation can change as a service, and you know it, it's an eight trillion dollar market, so it's a huge prize to go after, and so there will be some very big winners from that. Yeah. Um, Amanda, China. Obviously, uh, we talk about China in in the context of a, a lot of investments. Um, to what what extent do you think it's is it going to be key uh, in terms of technology and disruption going forward? So, up till now, China has or investing in China has really been about looking at Chinese companies that serve the Chinese market. So we we think about Alibaba or JD or Tencent. Their their main focus is on the Chinese consumer, but that has the potential to change going forward. I mean, the, China has sort of set this target of being a leader in in AI by twenty thirty, which is only sort of ten years away. Um, and if they achieve that goal, the, they will be disrupting sort of global markets rather than just China. Now, to, to succeed in AI, you need three things. Number one, you need data, you need compute power, and then you need um, engineers who uh, work on the AI algorithms. Um, and of those three, data is by far the most important. So if you have the best AI um, engineer um, in the world and an average amount of data, you're going to end up with worse results than 
a ton of or like the most amount of data um, and a pretty mediocre engineer. So that the, the data is the key factor there. And this is what sets China apart potentially from everywhere else. Um, firstly, due to the size of the people in the, com- in the country, it, it produces an insane amount of data, but also the level of digitization and the way that that's evolved. So China have these sort of these, these mega apps, such as WeChat, that kind of do a bit of everything. And where they differ particularly from some of the apps that we have in, um, in the West is that they they merge the offline or the real world with the online world. So you have this thing, it's called O2O, so offline to online. So things that you do in your everyday experience has a digital element, and therefore these companies are able to capture vast amounts of data about things that you are doing in your everyday life. Um, and that is sort of the, the holy grail, or the most important or the most valuable data that you can get. So whereas... It, it, companies in the west they're still producing huge amounts of data but it's usually just around the the digital world which is is still valuable but not necessarily as valuable so if china does end up with this huge amount of very valuable data even if it doesn't necessarily have the brightest engineers and i'm I'm sure that is not necessarily the case at all um, and the chance of them succeeding in ai becomes much greater than than the West. The other thing that also plays in China's favor here is uh, a slightly more relaxed approach to um, data privacy. So um, both at um, a national level, so from the government, then also at a corporate level and even at an individual level, the individuals are much less concerned about giving up their, their own data or their own privacy as if you were to compare that to, say, a German citizen who is very, very privacy concerned. Um, and that goes the whole way through. So the ability to use the data in China is significantly higher. So if we look at sort of that next wave of disruption that Mark was talking about, the sort of digital 4.0 and AI being a, a very important part of that, it, it's not unfeasible to think that China could end up being the leader and the key disruptor in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to, to touch on um, ESG and, and sustainability, Amanda. Um, is, am I right in thinking that it's your view that it's not quite as straightforward in, in the area of disruption as it, as it is in some other areas? Well, the, the work I've done in ESG is I would say it's not necessarily straightforward in any space. <laughs> the, the ESG um, metrics from MSCI are really quite complicated. So they, they split it to the very top level. You have the, the environment part, the social part, and then the governance part. But then within each of those three categories, there are themes believed below them. And then within each of the themes, there are then individual metrics. And for each company, the MSCI decide which of these individual metrics within the themes within the E, the S and the G are the most important and they then give them a weighting and then you're you're managed accordingly on that. So, for example, Amazon has a weight of 60% to its social issues um, and within that there's this category that's called labour management where they score quite poorly and that's for Um, workers in the fulfillment centers but then for example there's another part within the social which is employment which is given a zero percent weighting despite the fact amazon come very very highly and that's where they employ people in effectively in in seattle and silicon valley because they they consider that if they're compared to their peers it's sort of it's a everyone gives the same sort of amazing benefits pretty much wherever you work in silicon valley so you don't get 
additional brownie points for doing that. So it becomes really quite complicated to sort of pick it apart and find out what's the important thing. But the key takeaway that I think is when you're looking at ESG and when you're looking at tech companies is, is less about the snapshot in time of what rating does a company have, but about how it's moving. So as I said, Amazon doesn't score particularly well on this labour management issue, but it's improving. So its score has been improving over time, and this is an issue that they're working on. So that is a positive sign. It's much better to have a company, even if it's sort of got a low rating, but its rating's moving in the right direction. And are you able to engage with companies and try and influence the way they think about ESG? Yeah, I mean, uh, if we exclude 2020, we have hundreds of meetings a year face to face with companies, you know, we, Mark and myself go over to the US and, and to China um, and regularly to, and, and meet with companies. And during those meetings, that's when we're able to bring up, look, you're, you're, you're a little bit low on your ESG score for, for example, social issue or employment with Amazon. What are you doing? How are you addressing this? What are your plans to do with this? And, and obviously, if the answers from management is that this is not really a concern from us, then that's a little bit of a red flag. But if yeah. they're saying, yeah, we, we're aware of this issue and these are the things that we're doing to rectify it, then then that is a, is a positive tone that we're, that's coming from them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark, we've, we've talked already about lots of different uh, areas of technology and, and developments that are going on. Um, do you think technology is, is genuinely making our lives better? Uh, that's a really tricky moral question. Um, I think uh, taken holistically, yes, it is. Uh, I think it's fascinating to think how we would have coped with uh, the COVID pandemic without the wave of technology that we have today if there was no cloud computing. Um, it, economies would have totally ground to, 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 to a halt. So uh, in that respect, from an infrastructure point of view, technology is extremely powerful and very valuable. It's clearly offering um, tremendous uh, opportunities in areas like uh, healthcare. Um, the ability to use AI and analytics to do a lot of the um, work involved in looking at new potential um, drug compounds um, and the such like. Uh, the ability to make um, the world potentially greener, you know, autonomous vehicles, for example. There are clearly many, many benefits. I'd say the one um, uh, item in the, in the debit column is some of the social impact. Um, clearly, uh, I only have to look at my, my own children to see the amount of time they spend uh, on, 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 on social networking type opportunities uh, when they have that opportunity to do so. And I wonder whether that's going to change the way in which we as a sort of human race socialize with each other, uh, maybe for the worse. Um, so that, that is an area that does concern me. But I think holistically, it's clearly uh, generating huge amounts of benefit. Yeah, yeah, and we and we've all seen the scary headlines. I mean, are, are robots coming for our jobs, or is that is that just a sensationalist kind of oversimplification? Well, I think you know the, the technology has been used to improve productivity for tens of years, and as a population, we've always adjusted uh, and managed to create new jobs in new areas to deal with that. And I think predominantly that will happen in, in this wave as well. Uh, so that is for me less of a concern. Um, I think that the, the, the bigger concern, as I say, is the, is the social issue. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in your personal life, how much do you use technology? Have you got one, one kind of gadget or piece of tech that you simply can't do without? Um, <clears throat> well, I think everybody would have to say in a way that their mobile compute, computer device is the sort of go-to, couldn't possibly manage without item. Um, but if I went beyond that and, and actually looked at it in terms of perhaps a more brand-related um, device, then I have to say I, I, I have a Tesla and I think it's an absolutely extraordinary car. I'd never go back to having a non-electric vehicle. Um, and, uh, and so that would probably be my, my you know, luxury I couldn't do without in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've got we've got a, a a friend of the family who owns one, and they're a, they're an amazing piece of kit, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're true, truly amazing, truly extraordinary, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Amanda, what about you? So, also that we've put the smartphone to the side because obviously I don't think there's many people that could live without that. But um, the piece of tech that I couldn't do without um, is actually something new that I've only had in the last twelve months. So, um, and that's my Fitbit. Um, now, I had sort of avoided the whole wearable Fitbit trend for basically since they were introduced, saying the ugly piece of kit, I don't want that on my arm, it looks like I'm on day release from prison, and then COVID happened, <laughs> <laughs> and I was super worried about pining on the COVID pounds, so basically got involved with my, bought a Fitbit, have been, I suppose, a slave to the steps, and then the the gamification element of making sure that I um, am obviously top of the leaderboard against my friends, that I do the most weekly steps in the week. Um, but then the surprising thing from it as well is I, I've totally been hooked into all of the data that it provides. And most interestingly, my sleep data. So every morning I, I go onto the app to find out how well did I sleep last night. And I now use it as... Uh, I suppose proof to say to my husband, you know, you woke me up last night with your storing at three a.m. and and now I actually have it in, in in sort of digital form that is saying it's not just my imagination. You've uh, yeah, it's a problem. You need to fix this. Yeah, yeah, and and it's very clever the way it um, influences you to you know if you're just short of those ten thousand steps, you want to hit those ten thousand steps. So it's it it does make you exercise, doesn't it? Yeah. Also, the daily, the little buzz on my arm every hour to say you haven't you haven't stood up, you know, get up from your desk and walk around the room. I mean, I look a little bit crazy doing it, but at least yeah. I'm a little bit more active than I was. I know. I had to switch that functionality off because it was it was annoying. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't move enough. I know that the yeah the perils have been <laughs> sat at a desk, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and Amanda, what? What? Okay, here's here's a, a, a big question. What, in your view, is the greatest ever technological invention? So I, I was thinking about this, and I decided that it, probably I'd have to go with the telephone. So back in the 1870s, when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, to me, that's probably the first invention that really brought people closer. It, it got rid of the um, the the distance between people you could pick up a call and and that person just feels nearby um and and without the telephone you know we wouldn't have had things like the internet or the smartphone as we just discussed we rely so heavily on today but if i then sort of think of it from a maybe a little bit more of a personal perspective probably the first bit of tech i ever used was a telephone admittedly I don't know if you call it tech or not, was probably a Fisher-Price one with a little smiley face and a red handle that went around on a string. I remember that. (laughs) It 
it then upgraded to sort of the the phone with the little ticky uh, dial um, on the hall room table, then like a cordless phone, the car phone. I remember getting my first mobile phone, my first BlackBerry when I started work, and then my first smartphone. So if I sort of think of like key parts of my life growing up, the phone has really changed with me and it's been just such an integral part of it. Mm-hmm. And Mark, do you have a do you have a different take on that, or do you, do you agree with Amanda? No, I think I, I think I agree with Amanda. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really hard. I mean, I, in my notes, I've written the smartphone question mark. It's re- it's really hard to look past that, and you know, the phone more generally, isn't it? I think the point about it is that it is in whatever form, right from the start, it is the first clear way of connecting us uh, in in a technological way. It's the first network effect device. And Mark, is there, is there, there must be, is there an invention that you're still waiting for that you think we will actually see at some point? Well, actually, I have to say that I, I'm quite keen to see something which we've already seen uh, in the past and which actually has disappeared, which is faster travel. So I was lucky enough in 99 to travel on Concord, and it makes going to New York a day, as a day trip quite possible. Uh, and we don't have that any longer. Um, so supersonic or faster forms of travel is the thing I really look forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Amanda, is there, is there anything particular that you're, kind of, you're, you're, you're desperate I- to see again? I actually have that as the same answer that I find it. I find travel one of the most depressing things um, that we do at the moment. Well, not that we get to do it right now, but but the amount of time you have to give up sort of a whole day of holiday um, just to get to your vacation, to, to be able to speed that up. And, and I would say the key thing for it when we sort of think about hypersonic travel is, is for it to be financially viable, but also environmentally viable. Um, sadly, I think we're still a long way away from that happening, but I'm hoping it happens in my lifetime. I'd quite yeah. like to get to New York in a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. There are, there, and, sorry, Mark. I was going to say, there are, there are actually interesting areas. I, I had a meeting recently with... Um, the CEO of a consultancy business that advises uh, both the aerospace and the auto industry. And he was saying in aerospace, he was saying that, you know, these, these big airline companies and manufacturers of, of, of aircraft are looking at, you know, ways to make travel very, a very different experience. You know, what if you could climb in a sort of taxi-sized um, compartment um, in central London um, that went out to Heathrow and then attached onto another whole bunch of taxi-sized compartments that formed the you know, fuselage of an aeroplane, which was then taken out to the end of the runway and attached onto the wings. And these are things that they're looking at. These are actually genuine research projects. Mm-hmm. So I think the way we travel will, you know, that will, be, will, change, it will change dramatically over the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah, yeah, and that and that does it. It doesn't sound so far fetched when you put it like that. Clearly, it's achievable, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I'm trying to remember when Concord Concord first flew. Was it the the late sixties? Was it as early as that? And we we clearly have the the technology already, don't we? Yeah, it was just it was it, it was too expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it um, stopped seventeen years ago, so we've had backwards in fights for almost the last two decades yeah yeah um right i've, I've thrown a, a, another question in here that you weren't necessarily prepared for but, but um amanda if you could give your younger self just embarking on your career one piece of advice what what would that be 
Oh, gosh. Um, probably take every opportunity that, that comes along your way. Make sure you jump at them. Don't, don't be scared to jump in and, and go for it. Okay. And uh, the, the same question to you, Mark. Uh, I think um, work hard, work as hard as you possibly can. The biggest differentiating factor between you know most talented people these days is how hard they work. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that from sports people saying you know, that the harder I train, the luckier I get. I guess there's yeah. a lot of truth in that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. It was uh, it was um, it was great talking to you. Thanks for your time. Uh, thanks, Mark, and thanks, Amanda. Pleasure. Thank you. For more of our insights, please visit our website gam.com. Important legal information. The information in this podcast is given for information purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice. Opinions and assessments contained in this podcast may change and reflect the point of view of GAM in the current economic environment. No liability shall be accepted for the accuracy and completeness of the information. The mentioned financial instruments are provided for illustrative purposes only and shall not be considered as direct offering, investment recommendation or investment advice. Past performance is no indicator of current or future trends.